0: Welcome to the Move Daily Health Podcast, where we share information to empower you to be your own health hero.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 37 of the Move Daily Health Podcast. Today, we have the whole team together as Freya and I introduce the latest addition to the Move Daily family, Roshan Chopra. Roche holds bachelor degrees in psychology and education, is a lifelong mover who grew up competing in gymnastics and trampoline, and subsequently spent four years working as a professional acrobat with Cirque du Soleil in Las Vegas. Throughout his years as an athlete, he became an accredited coach in both men's artistic gymnastics as well as men's and women's trampoline, which sharpened his eye for movement and started him on his career journey into coaching. In 2015, Roche entered the health and fitness industry full-time as a personal trainer and educator here in Toronto he went on to seize the opportunity to join Freya in becoming one of Canada's only two Animal Flow Master Instructors. Roche is an avid student and, as a member of the Move Daily team, he is dedicated to ongoing education to better serve his clients. From handstands to kettlebells and Animal Flow to weights, Roche's exploration of a wide range of movement disciplines helps him serve a broad spectrum of clients and to effectively coach them to higher levels of strength, mobility, and overall health. As a side note, we sincerely hope that everyone listening is safe at home, practicing physical distancing, and staying positive through these uncertain times. We're doing our best here at Move Daily to continue to take care of our clients and to put out helpful health information. Please follow us on social media if you don't already, and don't hesitate to reach out and start a conversation. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the next 55 minutes of getting to know Coach Roche. Roshan Chopra, how are you doing today, my friend? I'm
2: doing pretty good, buddy. How, uh, how are you guys? It's a crazy crazy time.
1: It is a crazy time. We are in quarantine, and I believe, yeah, this podcast will be out in three days, two days. So, yeah, we can talk very topically about the situation right now. (laughs) So we are on day seven of our quarantine upon returning from the UK.
2: Yes.
0: Ordinarily, obviously, we'd be doing this in person, given that we are a team, but circumstance (laughs) prevents that.
1: Adapt. Yeah, it's weird to have to speak to you over
2: Zencaster, man. (laughs) It's all good. It's all good. Modern problems uh, require modern solutions. That's true.
0: So, Roche, can you let our listeners know what your background is as a human being, <laughs> athletically and so on?
2: Yeah, uh, no problem. So I grew up doing uh, athletics, athletically stuff. Nice. Nice. God, you guys edit this out, right?
1: <laughs> oh, that part I'm definitely not editing out.
2: <laughs> if you want to
1: start again, you can though.
2: <laughs> yeah anyway I grew up doing uh, gymnastics in Burlington so I did that until I was about I started around, like six I think I was pre-competitive and like that didn't end until about uh, I think I was like 19 or 20 and then I switched over to trampoline and double mini um which is a heck of a lot of fun uh double mini is super hard to explain over this otherwise uh I would and then I kept just hurting myself over and over again so at some point I decided probably wasn't the best idea to continue took about a year off i think uh and then i found out i was gonna get uh, that auditions for cirque du soleil were coming to burlington and that was about 2000 i think 2008 maybe early 2009 so decided whatever i'll just give it one last ditch effort and see what happens and uh weirdly as i was getting like ready for these uh for these auditions i had to lose a lose a bunch of accumulated fat I had put on from all the drinking and not doing any exercise at that time. So we were getting like in shape again for that, me and a buddy. Uh, and then I get a call from a friend who was already with Cirque, but was in Vegas. And he was like, hey, uh, somebody just left my show. Do you have an audition tape? And Luckily, I had because I had been getting ready for uh, for these auditions to come up. So I, uh, I had to burn a CD. That's how long ago this was. And then head exit down to down to the states because we didn't really i like i didn't have a youtube account or anything like that back then so we weren't like putting it uh links up or anything and then like two days later i got a call uh, from cirque and they were like yep so you're gonna move to montreal for the next two weeks and then uh you're gonna fly down to vegas i was like what, what just happened like my whole life got turned upside down there so yeah i spent four years in vegas uh as an acrobat with cirque which was like an insane amount of fun, as you can imagine. Uh, I think I was 21, 21, maybe maybe 22 when I moved down there. Right, 22. So that was, oh God, 11 years ago. We got old. (laughs) got old real fast. Anyway, so four years there and then left that company or was made to leave through layoffs at the time. Uh, Came home, had no idea what I was about to do. And then a buddy had messaged and was like, I did a stint on a cruise ship. If you're looking for work, like maybe just take that up for six months as you like find something else to do. So I said, okay, whatever. <laughs> applied for this cruise ship gig as an acrobat and lived on a cruise ship for six months after that, which was, again, as you can imagine, a lot of fun. Uh, we were treated extremely like I, because we were, I guess acrobats are in harder demand to get out on a cruise ship than other performers. We got, we we, we technically had like officers passes. So we got treated like royalty on the ship. We could go with places that the dancers couldn't go and the singers couldn't go and other crew members weren't allowed to do. We could, we had such good, uh, such awesome privileges compared to everybody else.
0: Was that a good idea? What? <laughs> <laughs> to give you guys extra privilege to go places <laughs> no. that certain crew members can't. <laughs> Suddenly, your is driving the cruise ship.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> Can <Could> you imagine? Terrible <laughs> choice. No, they like so you you were allowed to go into certain restaurants that other people weren't at certain times, like after hours that other people weren't. And right. uh, the other acrobat who I was end up was actually a really good friend of mine that I I needed I uh, snuck on. I somehow, we somehow convinced the people that he was also a really good acrobat. He'd never done acrobats or acrobatics in his life. He was just an NCAA gymnast. We were like, yeah, yeah, he can learn everything. Don't worry. So they hired him too. Uh, anyway, so we were, we got our own rooms and like, we were allowed to call room service and that kind of stuff all the time that we're, oh, people weren't. So we were just like, we'd pile into one person's room, order a bunch of rooms, room service for everybody. And then like, there'd be 10 people in a, in, you know, maybe a hundred square feet of room just eating room service and watching game of thrones on uh on a projection screen
1: that would that would really be frowned upon right now
2: really be frowned upon
0: yeah that many people in 100 square feet oh man <laughs> so how it's changed
2: oh so much but on those cruise ships like you always like you we were super clean cuz like you can pass on um uh what uh what's like what's beaver fever what's the real name for beaver fever jarda yeah, so you can pass that on really quick. So on the cruise ship, there's, there's like hand sanitizers are everywhere. You're constantly washing your hands. Everyone takes pretty good care of themselves. And even like the captain won't shake people's hands. He'll fist bump people just in case. So like you're, you're already practicing those things uh, a little bit more than we ever did here to make sure that that virus doesn't spread like wildfire if someone gets it on the ship, right? Right. Anyway, so after, after the cruise ship which was awesome. Uh, did I mention dollar beers for crew? Dollar beers, guys. <laughs> this is a health podcast. What did I do? Oh, right. I came back and then like missed out on a couple contracts. contracts, uh, moved home. And I got a call from a friend one day who managed one of the good life downtown. And she was like, hey, I know you're out of work right now. Uh, why don't you come and give me six months at this gym as a personal trainer? Uh, and after that, you can do whatever you want. I just need your help for six months so i 'd gone to high school with this person I'd grown up with her she We were pretty good friends. She had been out on a cruise ship uh doing dance for a little while, so we like came from the same background and she was she had been telling me how much she loved training and being in the fitness industry so i said okay let 's let 's do it see what happens So I moved to Toronto started work as a trainer with good life, and that was five years ago, which is I still can't believe time has flown that fast. But yeah, so now I'm in my fifth year in the fitness industry uh and uh just left good life to come and work with you lovely individuals.
0: Yay! Yay! I swear we didn't poach you. <laughs> Sorry, Shannon.
2: Yeah, I swear we didn't poach you. No, 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 no. That's that's not that's not poaching. I think that's just um career evolution. Well
0: yeah, yeah and we've both had our own experiences with that too. Yeah. Go ahead.
1: So can you tell us a little bit more about what it was like to work for Cirque du Soleil?
2: This is where you really edit me out, right? When I say something dumb. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Be honest, man. Like, I mean, you, you were living in Las Vegas. I'm sure that it was a pretty wild time.
2: Yes. So you like Vegas has, first of all, I, I, I love Vegas. Let's, let's just put that out there right now. Vegas is the, one of the coolest places in North America. It is, it is somewhere that has something for everyone. It doesn't matter... Who you are, what you believe, what you like to do, what your hobbies are—it's there for you, and you can find your niche and your people there. It's so so weird. You would never think that because mostly you go down there and you you're on the strip and you're just like you're watching mouth breathers walk, do what I call the diabetes shuffle across the up and down the strip, and trying not to like bump into anyone. They're like they're just like in such awe of what's going on. But as soon as you get off the strip, like there's pockets of people who are like. Uh, every from everywhere, um and that do everything. Like you can find your meditators, you could find your uh drum circle hippies, you could find anyone and everyone. It's crazy. For me, uh I basically retired when I got down there. I, me and a, a buddy and myself, like we just like <laughs> went to the golf course four to five days a week. <laughs> I retired at twenty two. Man, it was great.
1: So you were basically just training and performing with Cirque du Soleil and golfing.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's basically it. So we got down there at like the, I, I got down there in, what did I say, 2009. So right after like the huge economic crash happened. Yeah. So like it, there wasn't a lot of uh, like it, it, Vegas was getting, I, I think hit pretty hard back then. Um, And a lot of people were like, like all, there's so many vacant houses across the strip. But uh, I mean, we are, our, our industry took a hit, but our, I guess our wages didn't. So we were still making like pretty good money. So we were living pretty well down there. But we also bartered a lot, so we would trade tickets for golf lessons with these with a pro of ours. So like anytime he needed to uh, schmooze some clients, like we just we would buy fifty percent off tickets for him, and then we'd get at least once one, one golf lesson a week that we could uh, go and practice with after that at the course. And my buddy was an Olympic uh, Roma- uh, Olympic gymnast for Romania back in the day. So you can imagine like these two high level acrobat or high level athlete- athletes would get one lesson. We just like focus in on this one lesson for the week and then come back and like we ate it up and we like we were getting good enough that we were almost uh, considering ch- becoming USGA pros to work at golf courses after Cirque. <laughs> so why aren't you better at golf then? It's a really good question. Uh, Need boy. That was a pretty big insult that Dane just threw at me right there. Listeners (laughs) hurt right, right in my feels. Uh, You need to give some context behind that one. Okay. So uh, a little bit of context behind that insult from, from Dane. Uh, We went golfing while we were in Thailand recently. And uh, needless to say, I was, my shots looked like a shotgun. I was like spraying the ball left, right and center. No one knew what was going on. Are you or are you t- talking about the Lady Boy insult? Which one? Are no, we talking no,
0: about? you're doing. Yeah, that's exactly it. The fact that shockingly Dane managed to pull ahead of you and Sasha.
2: Oh yeah, it was just uh, and the amount of pressure in front of Dane. I mean, that's a lot. That's a lot of performance pressure, performance anxiety right there. It happens to a lot of guys. <laughs> it does. <laughs> it does. Every every now and then, it happens. No, but really to to answer your question, Dane, I think it comes down to the use it or lose it kind of thing. If you're not practicing something, you're not going to be good at it anymore, right? That goes for everything.
0: Absolutely everything. (laughs) Um, Now, even though your foray into the health and fitness world was five years ago, prior to that, you were also coaching, which I firmly believe builds an eye for movement. Um, even when the movement modalities themselves change. Can you tell us a little bit about your first forays into coaching?
2: Uh, Disastrous might've been a word for it. Uh, There you go. I think first forays into coaching, they're obviously with kids, not obviously, sorry, with kids. At the time it was with kids and it ranged from anywhere from like toddlers up to pre-competitive kids. And I think, so yes, the more you watch something, the better you become at seeing where the body is doing something incorrectly and you need to fix it. But when I say disastrous, I think it was more like the patience, learning how to like not go insane on uh, on a group of kids when they're like not paying attention and dicking around and just like not doing what they're supposed to be doing. And they, like they're kids, right? They don't really care that much. <laughs> Looking back on it, like I was probably identical to them when I was their age. Like my coaches must have had a field day with us trying to wrangle us in as well. <laughs> So I think my first foray into coaching was learning how to keep your temper, and that that, that was big, or like not go insane on uh, on on the, on the kids, even when you're like trying to explain you've explained something in nineteen different ways and they're still not getting it. Trying to just keeping your patience, knowing that it, they'll eventually get it, but just not right now.
0: Yeah, well, and I had the similar experience, but in the ballet world. Although I'd say I didn't have that many. There were, there were some really awesome kids in the groups that I taught, so I was pretty fortunate in that. But I distinctly remember how interesting it was just because you noted explaining things in 19 different ways. I remember when we would use certain cues and you'd watch what all the kids did and how differently they did it. And it was fascinating because you'd see all these kids respond to this one cue and maybe eight of them are doing what you anticipated and hoped. And then all the others have interpreted it differently. And that's the cool thing about coaching and language. And I mean, obviously, when we're coaching one-on-ones, you don't see that discrepancy. But it makes you look around and realize, oh, okay, I need to come up with a way for these eight people and a way for those two. And then those two mucking around, I need to figure out how to make them interested Um, and so on. So you're right with the patience and also just like trying to hone your own skill while keeping keeping an eye or a filter to try and understand why they're doing what they're doing. And in some cases when they're children, it's just like, Oh no, they're just, we've been going for half an hour and now they need to just run around.
2: Oh yeah. Yeah. I I hear you. So something I uh, left out in my little life journey there uh, was while I was getting ready for Cirque, I was also doing teacher's college. So when you say like, Oh, you have to explain something for these eight kids in this way. And then like these other four might take it. They t- interpreted it differently. They just didn't hear it from the right perspective, right? Yeah. At Teachers College, when you're trying to uh, teach one lesson to 20-plus kids and you have like 15 kids that learn, let's say, from in one modality – and then you have three kids that learn in another modality, and you have three kids that learn in another modality. I think that's twenty-one, not twenty, but that's okay if my math checks out right there. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, anyway, anyway, but you have to like you blend that all at once in one lesson like that. Yeah, that's nuts. Whereas like with our one-on-ones today, like these days, it's like okay, I have if I first of all, if I have twenty clients, congratulations to me, pat self on back. But uh, if you have what, 15 clients, you get one at a time. So this person learns very visually. So I have to do a lot of demonstrations. This person learns vocally. So I can, just, I can speak and they're going to pick it up. This person, I literally have to hold by the hand for every single thing they do to be able to do this. Whatever it is, but it's so much easier when it's just one person. I just like, <laughs> you just gave me like almost PTSD thinking back to trying to teach 20 people at once.
0: Sorry, bud. But it was, it did serve a purpose, right? Absolutely. I mean, when we were trying to hone any sort of skill set, sometimes if it was to music, like a specific piece, they would double the tempo and ask us to keep up. And then they'd slow it back down again to something that we previously thought was fast. And all of a sudden you were actually, you're like, oh, this is reasonable. Whereas had you only been listening at that speed it was different. So it's like teaching to a large group challenges you in such a way that then you hone that skill to get a large group to move in a, in the way that you're hoping they'll move. And then you come back and work one-on-one and you're like, okay, we can breathe.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: So how did transitioning into good life go? I mean, I'm sure the learning curve was pretty steep at the time.
2: Oh man. I had no idea what I was doing just dive in head first. <laughs> yeah, I I had taken I taken Canfit, I think. Yeah, it was Canfit. But I had taken it like 6 months before that or something just as a as a fallback just in case. But I I didn't plan on I guess using it so soon <laughs> so soon it's 6 months. I I don't, <laughs> don't know if that's a long time or a short time. Anyway, I'd forgotten basically everything in that time frame. So like coming back in and like having to relearn everything and then It's not like it's such a weird industry to come into you like I've heard the words like fake it till you make it so many times when I was beginning because like it sounds really shitty to say but like you kind of had to like just uh, give yourself like a false sense of confidence just be like yes I can I can I'm going to project this confidence in order to gain a client and then I will learn on the fly to pick everything else up. Because if I don't get the client, then I'm never going to be able to stay in this industry because I'm not making any money. Such a weird catch-22 there. So getting in that transition was was interesting. Not to mention, I was living in Burlington at the time. So I was getting up at 4.30 in the morning, riding a bike to the GO train for 5.30, coming in from Burlington by 6.30. And I had my first client at 7 here. Thank goodness I was at Union Station, so I didn't have to like take the TTC anywhere from Union and then i'd have to take the train home get on the bike and then <laughs> ride home so i'd put maybe an hour of like downtime once i got home <laughs> what a horrible time that was
0: <laughs> i think in in um yeah i think when any trainer is starting out no matter where they are um there are always those extremes that you pull because, you know, you need to do that in order to, in many ways, to gain experience. And like, I used to do split shifts. I would do the morning at a main gym from five until 11. And then I would go off to a clinic from 3 p.m. till eight. And so, yeah, you get home and you crash and then you get up and do it all over again.
2: Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. How long do you think it took you before you felt comfortable?
0: Well, I was in a slightly different boat in the sense that I started with mentors while I was at university uh, studying human kinetics, I was one of the few students that was accepted to work at the Health and Performance Center. And that was really helpful because we had mentors for everything. So, you know, you never had to be totally on your own. So all the questions that you had, you had somebody there for you, you never were worried. But I will also admit that when I went to a Globo, the main regular gym for the first time, it was challenging because that was a completely different environment for me. Like it wasn't a sports rehab environment. And the clients coming in had very different goals than what I had encountered before, where they're coming in for fitness testing, or they're coming in for an injury or uh, so it exposed me to a very different population that I hadn't experienced before. And so that is again, a really steep learning curve of understanding, oh, the people who are coming in hurt at a sports clinic tend to be pretty bloody motivated to do their work. And then the person that I just saw at a main gym who really wants to accomplish this had 20 things get in their way last week. And some of them are emotional and some of them are scheduling and others are just procrastinating out of fear so like it's it's a completely different ball game in terms of the people that you work with but it's a great experience because every human is is different
2: uh, yeah no you're right you're absolutely right again like you have to you have to switch your whole mentality on how to motivate people not just teach them or make them. i guess learning comes into it but it's like more like hey how do i motivate this person to schedule these workouts properly what is exactly. what is going to stick finally to get through that this is something that is important or that this is a goal that they need to prioritize because they haven't been prioritizing it for x amount of years
0: yeah and and conversely like at the sports clinic that I was at here in Toronto we had half an hour with people and some people were really motivated and did all their homework and other people didn't want to do anything between when they'd come in so like you'd see them for half an hour and then they'd go away and keep doing like making no changes to their habits and then come back in the next week and expect that they should be quote-unquote fixed. And so it was communicating effectively and finding a way that fit their lifestyle to make it stick because it's like, okay, clearly those five things or those three things or even those two things I gave you are not resonating. So let's switch it up so that they resonate. But it's it's always, yeah, it's always challenging. It's always a puzzle. It's like what motivates one person. You know, some people they're like, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. And they do, they do it everything to a T and then others inherently want to, but a lot of other things overwhelm that priority to make it less so.
2: Yeah, absolutely. To, to your point of like what is starting in the transition into good life, I didn't have a lot of like gym background, like weightlifting background, we'll call it. I, I, I was like all body weight from gymnastics and then whatever I had picked up on the fly watching, uh, not watching videos. I mean, like being in the gym with other people randomly through high school and, um, really a lot of it, uh, a lot of exercises came from, uh, you guys remember when that movie 300 came out? Oh yeah.
0: (laughs) I remember the effect that had on the gym space. Yep.
2: Those the most motivating, like watching the videos online of how they got into shape was like one of the most motivating things. I think that was like the pre- precursor to CrossFit right there. Pretty much. Like, yeah. Because those guys were doing the exact same insane workouts for time. Um, And then like right after that CrossFit came in.
0: Yeah, it was right around the same time. Like 2009, yeah. they yeah. were all around the same time. Yeah. Because I yeah. encountered both of those things. There were no crossfits in Toronto yet when I encountered CrossFit, but 300 was around the same time
2: so like that was that was big, like seeing seeing that, but that's where I got most of my experience from and then I think, like like you Frey, I joined a CrossFit gym when I got back from the cruise ship for a little bit, and yep. then you learn you learn just a little bit more and a little bit more, and then I mean there's so much to learn in this industry. I think the mo- the more you learn, the more you realize you have no idea what's going on. <laughs> Uh, the transition of like learning how to program and all that, that was, that's a lot right there when you've never done it to, to figuring that out. And I felt, I think I fell into the trap that most new trainers fall into. Well, at least I hope most most other people do. So I'm not alone is uh, where you, you're just programming way too hard for people, right? You're just like, you'd want to show them all the coolest, coolest exercises in the world. And you're like, Oh, this one was awesome. This works, this, this, and this, but it's like, you know, seven levels above what these people are ready for, uh, or coordinated enough to do. So it takes you a, a, about a year or two to really learn that you, less is more here, guys. Less is always more.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, coming from an athletic background too, you have a distorted perception of what people are capable of. Yeah. Like when I first entered the gym space, I was like, okay, so do I do this for 30 hours a week? like my own workouts. I was like, I don't know cuz that's what I trained before. So in my sport like discipline, so do I come here and do that? <laughs> um so yeah, understanding what somebody's capacity and being able to read that and also then being able to translate it into programming I think is a is a skill set that comes with time and practice and it, yeah, I agree. I think a lot of new trainers over, overdo it. And that's where we hear a lot of people say, oh yeah, I saw my train. I could barely walk. And that's where all those myths of that equating a good training session come out. It's like, you shouldn't actually feel crippled. You should have more energy. You should feel good. You should feel like you worked. Sure. But Mm -hmm. you should have the wherewithal to be able to move through your day and sit down on the toilet without collapsing the next day and the next day after. Yeah. That crippling sensation is definitely one that I'm familiar with. And one of my first coaches put me into a position of, of rhabdo. Yeah. Oh, wow. is for the listeners, like extreme muscle breakdown, uh, because they saw a, an athlete in a different domain, different discipline. And they're like, Oh, you're a good mover. Cool. We're going to do 150 reps of all of this stuff. And I was like, okay, well coach said, go, so I'm going to go did it. And then couldn't move or eat comfortably or sit up for two weeks. Wow. Yeah. So that, that, that experience, the personal experience made me realize, oh, I don't want to be that coach for other people.
2: Hmm.
1: Yeah. So, so from a, a trainer who just kind of went to good life because they had a friend who said, Hey, come join me for six months. How did that six months turn into five years? Were there any peak moments in there that really trigger you to say, Hey, I love this industry or what was it about personal training that kept
2: you going? Ooh, look at you with these hard hitting questions. Uh what I do, bro. I do. That's what I do. This is my 66th podcast. I know what's going on. What number of podcasts is this? 37, I believe. Oh man. Oh. Um okay. So w- what motivated me to stay here? Uh A, I am not behind a desk. I cannot sit still for the life of me. I am that kid that either needs to move around or falls asleep at the desk. Uh I and to this day that is still a thing. My last year at Good Life, I did uh, assistant fitness manager for like maybe six months um, while someone was on mat leave. And I would literally fall asleep at my desk at Good Life while I was typing emails because I can't stand, I couldn't handle being at a desk looking at a screen for that long. And I would just like KO. Not being behind a desk was a pretty big motivation to continue in this industry. But also, like I love coaching. Like it's it's always been something that just comes naturally. And uh, I kind of enjoy, kind of operative word, love to uh, do. That's a good reason. <laughs> yeah. On top of that, like I get to lift, I get to move around, I get to explore different ways to move every day. Like my my job is doing what I have done for my entire life. Like I grew up in a gym. I want a, now I get to work at a gym. <laughs> like it's it's pretty awesome. I count myself pretty lucky that I got to. I fell into this. The way i did and got to meet at the time i did too because i got to meet so many uh, other people that kept me in this industry like you two um like animal flow crew like those guys you meet those kind of individuals and you can see what they've been able to accomplish in this industry and you're like well i want a piece of that because you guys look super happy uh, i love doing what you guys love doing so let's continue being happy for the rest of our lives you know what i mean <laughs>
0: <laughs> well we couldn't agree more cuz i mean being able to coach movement and then watching the success of people acquire movement skills and life proficiency is pretty is pretty re- rewarding in and of itself
2: mm-hmm. there's also like, this like undercurrent of like competition in our industry and coming from like a competitive background and being one of the most competitive humans on the planet like that is also a pretty big driver whether that's a good thing or a bad thing it's there and like, I always like to be really good at the stuff and like be the best. Well, I
0: will, I will agree. And this level of competition, the, part of the reason we love you so much is that this has happened on multiple occasions where we tell you there's something available to learn. And unlike a lot of people who will take, you know, months or weeks or even years to get onto it very next day, you're like, yeah, so I ordered the thing or I signed up for this course. So <laughs> that Competitiveness is well channeled, I would say. You're not trying to like out alpha people, or maybe you are, but we can cut that out if you agree yeah. to that. <laughs> There's
1: only room for one alpha here at Roche,
2: and it's Freya. You're so <laughs> right about that. You're so Dane, where would we be without her? Oh
1: Guys, the answer you don't want to know. We'd be two
2: two sad little Boy Scouts, just like not being able to build a fire out in the woods. <laughs>
0: Bray, we need gasoline. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's true, like that—that that competitive spirit, um, especially the way that you express it, we think is awesome. Because you know, when we say, "Hey, this might be of interest," you're like on it right away. Now, in terms of client base, like we know that for us, we've over the years honed in on who we are, what kind of person we're best for. And we refer out when it's somebody that we know either needs a different skill set, like practitioner wise, or somebody that would resonate a little bit better with a different personality. And in terms of your experience, what kind of clients do you love to work with?
2: uh, That's a good question. Because... So there, there has to be some motivation to, we'll call it like, be consistent for the clients that I enjoy working best with. People that uh, are using trainers only for the fact that they're paying for it and otherwise they would never come in that foot in a gym or they would never do any sort of form of exercise or movement unless they're paying for it probably aren't like, I guess, my favorite clients to work with, although they might be amazing people. As far as clientele goes, I find they're never going to be consistent enough to see any changes whatsoever, or the changes are so minimal that like I don't feel that I've like I've done the best I could. So in that yeah. sense, I feel unfulfilled.
0: Absolutely, and you feel it's challenging for any professional. I think in any industry, when a client um, isn't really willing to meet their end of the bargain, um, because you don't feel like you want them to keep paying for something they aren't really getting full value from because they're not holding up their side. Joey, right. actually, that you worked with, asked me that exact same question about 10 years ago. And my answer was anyone who's motivated.
2: Yeah. Like that's that's what you need because otherwise you feel like a glorified babysitter or like or the most expensive babysitter. I'm just a like, very
0: expensive babysitter with a lot of knowledge that is not being be put used. to use.
2: Yes. Ah, and this is why we work together. <laughs> Correct, uh, consistency, consistency. Uh, I just wanted to make a point about your what you said about the competitiveness. First of all, I really appreciate that. second of all, i don't I don't think I ever noticed that, or like that's not my motivation behind doing those things as quickly as i done I've done them. It was it's imposter syndrome that makes me do them as quick as possible because like there's always something i I feel like I'm always behind in everything because I came into this industry at I think I was almost almost thirty. Whereas like people are coming in with different backgrounds, uh, different degrees and everything, like kin degrees, things like that, or they've been in this industry for so long. So I felt like I still feel that I'm always behind the eight ball in those things. So when you ask for those things, you're like, Hey, there's this thing that you should look at or read, or a course you should take. A, it's coming from someone or people with way more experience than me. B it's coming from someone who I think is like, extremely intelligent and whose opinion I hold very highly. So I'm like, of course I want to take this and see, it's like, well, shit, I got to get on this. Cause there's out someone out there. That's going to be learning this as well. And if I want to be as good as them or that next person, I need to be learning it on top of that. See, and
0: their full circle is the competitiveness. Oh yeah, you're right. And you you to work your way there. <laughs> Dane. Dane.
1: You're, you're not wrong. in that in this industry, you you constantly have to be learning new information because it keeps evolving. There's more research coming out all the time. There's always new things to learn. And yeah. so if you aren't learning, you will fall behind, and then you won't be able to service
2: your clients as well as you could. Absolutely. Actually, it's one of the biggest problems with our industry is that there's almost too much to learn, right? Because like you could get bogged down in like, in something that's so specialized uh, that you think you need to give to all your clients. It's the same, same kind of thing as a new trainer that's trying to give someone too much when they're not ready for it. You can learn way too much and then not be able to hone in on the really important stuff because there is so much out there.
0: I absolutely agree. And that's why even when I've taught courses and had people ask, and I know this has happened to a lot of other educators. I'm not saying this is a me thing, but, um, when they come up and they're like, Oh my God, how do you know so much? Um, how do I go learn that? And it's, it's like, don't rush that process. You just can't like you, you have to, sink into the basics and then learn a bunch of stuff, practice it, and then go back to the basics again and revisit them with new information over and over and over. And even within like injuries that will happen, you'll learn a whole new side of the body that you didn't think you could learn before, or then all of a sudden you work with a new type of client and you're going to have to relearn again. So you're absolutely right. It it can be overwhelming, but the other side of it that I think creates even more overwhelm is when um, people are trying to put on a show, so to speak. And Mm. we have a lot of people um, that we know who got they called themselves out on this. They got caught into the trap of taking cert after cert after cert to say, oh, I I do all these things and list them on their CV and list them on their website. But they've spent five hours outside of the course working within each of 10 disciplines. You'd be way better off spending 50 on one of them, figuring out what pieces of that system serve your client base best And then moving on to the next thing and adding in layers. Um, But I think that's hard, especially when we're new in the industry. We want to just like collect info, hoard info, find what sticks, throw spaghetti at a wall. And also figuring out your client base, I think, always helps refine what education choices you make. Because like I don't need to go take certain courses because unless I'm personally interested in them um, or I need to know what's out there in that specific domain. If they have nothing to do with anybody who walks through um, our doors.
2: You're, you're so you're you're so right. Like if you want to learn how to juggle kettlebells, that's a worthwhile pursuit. If that's what you want to do, but who are you going to use that with?
0: <laughs> like- exactly. <laughs> Yeah. Specialized training is, is interesting because it can be a lot of fun. And if you know that you're doing it just for you, then that's awesome. And I, I mean, I think every person in fitness needs to take courses that are just pure indulgences. I think it's important to have fun and to just explore for your purposes. But um, when it comes to just collecting certs to list them on a site, but really the only tools that are actively being used are, you know, 20 years old and you still believe that needs shouldn't go past your toes, then there are some basics that need to be revisited
2: absolutely um can i ask you guys a question who programs for you do you guys program for yourselves or do you find someone to program for you
1: yeah so i i well so when friend and i met i always program for myself so especially when i was competing in strongman i would always do my own programming with some input from uh friends who were in the strongman community as well and then bros, bros yeah bros and uh, then Freya started giving me her input. And then eventually I just completely put it in her hands to program for me. And mm-hmm. uh, right now I I haven't been on a, a program, like a really strict program for quite some time, just because of all of our travel and everything else that's going on. But uh, Freya does the majority of my program.
0: And I would love to say that someone else does my programming because I've tried that multiple times over the years. But ultimately what I found... Because of the hypermobility, I found people had a really hard time programming for me. And even I had a hard time programming for me because I couldn't follow all the set, you know, the set programming rules of linear progressions or even wave and all of that. None of that really worked with the hypermobile system. And so I created my own sort of framework within which I found success because nobody likes to chug along with a program and then feel like they consistently fail every time they hit week three, no matter what week three looks like. And, Mm -hmm. um, that coincides with a lot of flares with hypermobility. And so once you figure out where your own system fluctuates, and then I would set up overriding goals. So like if I had a race, it was really easy. I'd work backwards from there and mix Mm -hmm. together all of my disciplines. But the more I mixed together disciplines, the better off I did. So like runners, well, the programs are often five days a week, sometimes six or seven, depending on the distance. And I did really well with one and -hmm. then a race, because my races in the summer were often every uh, weekend or every other weekend. And that was it. And outside of that, I was like lifting and swimming and doing all these other things that were concurrent. But I, I basically programmed for myself in a very conjugate model of multiple disciplines. So I joke that I'm a really good generalist, but I'm okay at racing endurance. And, That's good. Yeah. And when I started programming with looser end caps and with general goals I was going for, then I was able to listen to how it was every single day. And I, you know, the trend was always upwards, but when I f- set to follow like a very strict, like we're doing five, three, one, that was like 12 years ago, but still, um, or following a set Olympic program, whatever discipline I followed, if I followed the more traditional models, I failed, injuries, um, flares, whatever it was, subluxations was the most common thing. But as soon as I started blending things in my own patterns, I found I was far more successful. And and that's the only reason I started doing it myself is because nothing much existed out there that was successful for hypermobile people. And of course I consulted a number of practitioners who worked with me along the way. So they helped me understand physiologically what was happening. And then I could take that and piece it together in, In terms of, I could translate that into what programming for my goals and purposes needed to look like.
2: Mm, Okay, that's good. Uh, I I don't know. I don't know how you program for yourself, Dane. I understand why you would like shop it out and free. I understand that you have to. I hate programming for myself. Like I absolutely despise it. I don't know why. I just never follow something that I've given myself it's like i'll change workouts in on the fly or like i'll have sat down and made something and then i'll get to the gym and all of a sudden i don't like what i program So I always have to get it from someone else or another source. And then I can find, like, I can adhere to something.
0: But I think a lot of us are like that, right? Like, I used to hire people to program for me all the time. It wasn't that I wasn't capable as a strength Mm -hmm. coach, but I would hire people because we are successful often as humans. We're very successful when we know that we've had input from someone else. And as an athlete, it's almost like you're trying, you're not trying to please someone else, but you respect a coach's opinion enough to do everything they told you to do, even if you don't like it. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I I get that. And I know a lot of coaches that, I mean, we've worked with a lot of coaches to give them programs just because they're in the same boat. They're like, no, I don't want to do it myself. Can you guys just give me a framework and I'll ad lib a few things and add in things I enjoy, but I will definitely do the framework that you set out. So I don't think you're alone, and I'd be curious to see what our clients think of this or what our listeners think of this in terms of whether they're more compliant with something they've set out for themselves or they're more compliant with something that anybody else has set out for themselves.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Or for them, sorry.
1: Yeah. And in my case, it was when I started lifting when I was about 20. I mean I ran all the different programs under the sun over the years, you know, starting with, you know, West Side for Skinny Bastards and then 531, 5x5, just all these different programs. Then I would have, again, the bros would make me programs with some of these other ones kind of mixed in. And then I started kind of dabbling into it myself. And then it just got to the point where I was so competitive in my sport that I knew I knew my schedule. I knew what equipment I did have sometimes versus didn't have other times. So I had to start kind of piecing together, you know, days of the week where I could be at one gym versus another gym. And so my programming got pretty specific that I couldn't just take something out of the box. And even to communicate that to somebody else, it was really hard. So I got really good at knowing what I needed and having the input from other people to kind of cross reference it. And so Until I met Freya, who helped me rehab from the knee injury and then ultimately make me stronger, it was, everything was going the right direction. So it wasn't that I never followed a program when I was younger, I definitely needed to follow a program, but I just kind of grew into that over time. Mm. Yeah. Now, kind of totally switching gears, can you talk to us about the transition into animal flow? Um, And despite all your experience with gymnastics and acrobatics, some of the main challenges that you faced with the program.
2: Transition into animal flow. Well... Okay, we'll start at the beginning. So I was working a good life at the time. I think this is what, five years? Ago? Yeah, this must have been my first, my first six months there. I think I'd taken uh, level one and at that level one course, the DTS level one, because Freya, you were teaching that one. Yep. You, Steve Beattie, and Kevin were teaching that one. Anyway, so I, d- during that time, like we'd go out for, for dinner. Was it dinner? On like the Saturday, because that used to be a four-day course. Yep. So on at that time, you can obviously tell all those people that are, te- that are that are teaching that course are people you want to know in the industry, and like your names had come up before we ever even met you guys. Like you were <laughs> that team was like hailed as gods when I first got into this industry. Like you'd say that name and be like, there would be like an uh, like reverence around it. So when you when we met you, we were like, okay, hey, obviously we want to know you guys, like, and we want to. Pick your brains because, like, you guys have been doing this for so long that you could show us the way. So I introduced myself to you guys, and I, I, that just ha- so happened at the time. I think you had taught what what one course, like the first course in in Canada.
0: Um, I don't remember, but uh, yeah, I think we were only within the first year in.
2: I think it was uh, something like that. Anyway, um, so and I gave everybody my background, so it was kind of like right time, right place. Yeah. In in Toronto, anyway. And luckily enough, um, Mike was coming in for, uh, Mike and Karen were coming in for CanFit that, I think it was 2016. Yep. That, uh, that CanFit and you were meeting, I think you were even meeting him for the first time because we met up in that park. Right. And we flowed for maybe like an hour while you taught the course or pieces of the course for him.
0: Yeah. I'm trying to remember if I'd met Mike before that. I don't rem- I mean, I had via video cause we did training sessions for teaching through video.
2: Mm. yeah I, I i think that you, did you, did you just hear me go mm, that's something i picked up from him and i can't stop now
0: anyway. <laughs> we're not cutting that out we're gonna send it to mike
2: especially with spending so much time with those guys in thailand like and listening yeah. to him, him with his mm, now i've got now, now i'm now i'm doing it like every time i do it i'm like ah there it is and so Even
0: all of our brains and hearts
2: yeah so anyway like it, when we were out in that park like I, it's you and me. So we're like, we're chill at AF. Uh, and then he enjoyed, he, he didn't hate me. So it was a good time, I guess, to have uh, kind of groom another person and another instructor. So from there, it was just like, okay, come and shadow Freya on courses for a bit. Uh, and luckily enough, uh, they allowed me to come on as a, as an MI. Uh, that's master instructor, just in case anyone's wondering. And then from there, it's just been like, I don't know. You just keep getting deeper and deeper into it. As far as the transition goes though, Dane, I I did not forget that second part of your question. It was a, I wouldn't say difficult, but challenging experience because in the gymnastics, like when you hold yourself up, there, there are certain ways to do it, but as long as you kind of get the job done, you get the job done. You know what I mean? Whereas like with animal flow, there's so much specificity to it. Like there, you, you corkscrew the hands into the ground what gymnast are you going to meet that's corkscrewing his hands into the ground when he's trying to hold himself up in a planche or a push-up position like you're not going to find that yeah so like that kind of stuff like and it's with all the postural correctives that you can you can bring to it from the af side um that's not as you know fuck that's animal flow for everyone listening i'm just going to keep helping out with the abbreviations that's Uh, perfect (laughs) but there's there's so much specificity to it right like every move is done in this way We, we don't deviate out of these, out of these ways, unless we're transitioning and we need to move or rotate something in a certain way, uh, as we transition from movement to movement. But as far as the movements go, like they're, like I said, extremely specific. So wrapping your head around that, that it's not just about getting from this position to this position or anything like that. It's, we're doing this for this reason and for X, Y, and Z, uh, that was challenging to have to take steps backwards in order to learn that to be able to move forward. So challenging and humbling, I think, are the words I would choose to describe the first my first encounter with the actual program and trying the program on my own.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot of structure to it rather than just accomplishing the end goal.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And even though you were somebody who had spent a ton of time on your hands, I think uh, the handstand piece going in the tuck balance into animal flow proved to be pretty challenging.
2: You're absolutely right. Like, again, uh, like I can, I can hold a handstand for, uh, quite a, quite a long time, but that that's a specific way of holding a handstand for gymnastics. And then for animal flow, it's a completely different way of being an inversion. You're keeping your knees and hips in a, in a different position. And that, like that messed with my head for a little bit, it's actually much more challenging to hold it the way we do an AAF than it is. Just to hold a handstand, period, because of where the weight is and where your where your knees are in the inversion.
1: Yeah, man, you you must be a pretty good handstand coach by now, huh?
0: <laughs> nice. <laughs> see
1: what I did there. I
2: see what you did there. Shit plug.
0: <laughs> Dana is shameless.
2: I mean, Dean, I, I don't, I don't ever, I don't think I'll ever say that I'm good, that good at uh, uh, almost anything. Um, but uh, I ho- I hope that I become. decent handstand coach over the years and picked up a few tricks in the 20 odd years I've been upside down yeah don't worry I'll be your hype man (laughs) pump those tires
0: (laughs) so Roche we have a few wrap up questions and Mm. first one is what is the most impactful book you've read in the last year now I know that you're a fan of fiction and you do not have to pick a health related book if that is your preference
2: you you know what? You, I halfway through this podcast, I just realized I hadn't prepared for that question. <laughs> I was like, Ah, you're Roche, come on! You knew this one was coming at you, and you didn't you didn't come up with something. So you're absolutely right. Fiction, fantasy, sci fi, bring them at me. Oh, it's the best. I just love nerding out, guys. I love going into a different world and like leaving this one for a while. Can I give you one of each?
0: Yeah, for sure.
2: Okay, so best if you, for best series for fantasy is Stephen Erickson. Start with Gardens of the Moon and go from there. It's like 10 books long, and it is some of the best plot-weaving writing I've, I've read in that, uh, in that genre. So, and he's from Winnipeg, so Canadian content. Get in there. But most impactful book that I've read in the last six months, I, I think someone said it on the podcast before. Man, Can't Hurt Me, David Goggins, is an insane book. I finished it in two days. I could not put it down. It is just, <laughs> this guy's mentality is insane. And like you don't need to have this guy's crazy mentality. But the ability of someone to be able to focus on one goal and shut physical pain, uh, mental uh, abuse, every shitty thing you could think of, be able to shut that out just to focus on this one goal is, it is quite inspiring. So I would recommend Can't Hurt Me, David Goggins. Again, you don't need to become this guy. You just like take lessons from him.
0: Absolutely. And you'd be uh, happy to know that a recent podcast guest actually mentioned that same series.
2: What? Where was I for this?
0: Are you kidding me? Well, it's not been released yet. So, but just as an FYI, there's a practitioner out there who would completely agree with you. Oh, my God. Send it.
1: Oh,
2: send them over. Okay. Best friends. He's in Toronto as well. so Hey, okay. oh, that's exciting. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Every time I say it, so no one has any
1: idea what's going on. So, cool. Yeah, well, we literally recorded that yesterday. So, it's funny. Back-to-back days. Next question. Cool. What is your non-negotiable daily self-care
2: tool or habit,
1: particularly now that you're in isolation?
2: Oh, okay. Self-care tool. I. I mean okay, I will do for anybody that's taken FRC, one of my like, I have to do this to make my hips feel better every day is uh, the pails and rails for in the 9090 core four position. Yep. I I have to at least do core four multi like three or four times in the morning or the 9090. My body just won't wake up properly unless like I get the gunk moving uh, from that. So one of my non-negotiables is that that mobility training.
0: Absolutely, we agree. If you had five minutes with someone, what is the one thing you would try and impart to help them with their well-being?
2: Uh, crawl, walk, run. Brilliant. Yeah, I think right, we said it already earlier. Like less is more. Like you, it's it's okay to not do the craziest thing or the most extreme thing like right away or at any point in time like chill man chill you will get to where you need to be by crawling first then walking then running you can't just all of a sudden become an olympic sprinter overnight are you sure i mean i've tried it it doesn't work
0: he's <laughs> kidding about the sprinter part <laughs> really i can't overnight shocker
2: but also don't
1: forget how to crawl and continue crawling. Yeah. Get, get in that quadrupedal position. Let's go.
0: I'm going to interject. There was I had a, a great chat with a client this morning. You know, now that we're all remote, we're just video chatting. And she, she remarked that she's never been made to move as slowly as she's moving. And she's she remarked how aware she was becoming. And what came to mind was a kid learning to write. They don't go fast when they're trying to trace letters. They go slow. And it's a motor task. Right. And with a lot of our clients, uh, or sorry, just I would say with a lot of people undertaking movement modalities, the hit training and the fast pace always appeals. And we have nothing against that. But owning the slow piece and allowing your body to acquire those motor tasks, allowing your body to write those letters and trace the lines and learn what they look like requires slowness and stillness. Mm -hmm. And the fast will never break down. The fast isn't going to have the wheels fall off because there's that slowness piece that's been built in.
1: Yes. So embrace
2: slow. (laughs) Own slow. Is that, is that maybe it?
0: Own slow is definitely what I say, but.
2: (laughs) Embrace slow. (laughs) Oh, I like it. I
1: like that. (laughs) Um, So finally, Roche, Mm. what's new and where can people
2: find you? What's new? Well, what's new is, uh, I, uh, work, with Move Daily now under your little umbrella tree. Uh, uh, I wonder if anyone gets the umbrella tree reference. I get it. (laughs) Good, good. Gloria, Iggy, and the other guy. Oh, Gloria. (laughs) Oh God. Anyway, uh, you can find me on the Move Daily website. Um, You can also find me on Instagram at strongmad. That's S-T-R-O-N-G-M-A-D. I'm usually posting tons of flows. That's how I use that in my practice. I love. I think escapism is a thing for me. Whether it's books or flow, it uh, it needs to be there. That could be one of my non-negotiables. I, and I don't think that I think that's all. That's the, yeah. I don't have a Twitter account.
0: That's okay. What we've learned from our brief brief time on Twitter is that there are a lot of angry people out there. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, Actually, Twitter
1: arguing is what I've what I've learned. It's really not a cool place. Yeah. In any case, my friend, well, it was great to chat with you. It's unfortunate that uh, despite being in the same city, we couldn't do this in person, but we are doing our social duty to stay away from one another for however long we need to so that we can get back to flowing together in the park and living life.
2: Oh, man, I, I appreciate you guys taking the time to isolate to make sure that this doesn't go, as, go longer than it needs to. Yeah, you as well, my friend. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And it's ironic that we all got an Amber Alert or an emergency—no, sorry, not Amber Alert. It's ironic that we all got an emergency alert as we started this podcast, reminding all people who've traveled to quarantine. We
2: uh, yeah, are. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate that. Um, I was like, I was super nervous coming on here. I'd never been interviewed before. Well, I think you did a great job. Yeah. Well, that. Let's let's see what you can leave in there.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see how much I cut out of this puppy. Almost.
0: all
2: right
1: buddy well thank you so much for joining us on the move daily health podcast and we will catch everyone next time we hope you enjoyed our conversation to hear more head on over to stitcher or itunes and subscribe to the move daily health podcast and don't hesitate to leave us a review thanks for listening